Okay, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray for your blessing upon the preached word today. Lord, please inspire me as I bring forth this message that it would be clear that, Lord, nobody would be left in confusion, that, Lord, the new covenant of which we are a part becomes precious and we see the better promises that it brings to us and we can find ourselves rejoicing and worshiping you because of what you've done in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come to Exodus chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, and 24, we're entering a section of the book of Exodus where the Lord God is entering into a covenant with the nation of Israel. Now you say, what's a covenant, Brian? What what are you talking about? A covenant is an arrangement between two parties where they bind themselves with promises toward one another. So it's like a contract. It's where two parties pledge, they take oaths, they make a compact where they will promise that they're going to do certain things and the other party promises that they will do certain things. And we all enter into these these covenants, don't we? Marriage is a covenant. A man and a woman stand at the altar, the preacher is there, and the preacher asks them to repeat their vows, and they promise that they're going to do this and that and the other thing, and the woman promises that she's going to do this and be faithful till death do her part, and then the preacher says, I now pronounce you husband and wife, because when they make those promises under God to one another, they've entered into a covenant, a covenant arrangement. That's what we're seeing in Exodus chapter 19 through 24. God is entering into a covenant with Israel. Israel is like his wife, and God is marrying Israel. Now, why do I believe that? Why do I believe he's entering into a covenant? Well, let me show you why. Let's go to Exodus 19, verse 1. It says, In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they sat out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness And there Israel camped in front of the Lord. I'm sorry, in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now, verses 5 and 6 are covenant language. Did you see it there? If you will do this, then I will do that. This is an if-then covenant that God makes with Israel. And he specifically says in verse 5 that one of the things that they must do is they must keep his covenant. Well, what is that covenant, Lord? What covenant are they supposed to keep? Well, if we keep reading chapters 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23, we will find out what that covenant is. You see, God is going to give them his law, and he's going to require them to be obedient to his law. 
in order to be part of this covenant. That's why in the very next chapter, he gives us the Ten Commandments, which are the core of the Mosaic Covenant. And it's not by accident that the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's the core of this covenant that God is entering into with them. God is marrying Israel. And he says, you must be faithful to me. If you go after other gods and commit idolatry, then you are breaking the covenant. We are in covenant relationship now. So in chapter 20, he gives the Ten Commandments. And then he goes on from there and gives all kinds of other commands, like personal injury rights or property rights, uh, laws concerning slaves, laws concerning the, the festivals and feasts that Israel would observe. So he goes very specifically into very minute and sundry laws. So for four chapters, God gives his law. And then I want you to follow with me in chapter 24. Look at chapter 24, verse 1. Then he, God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances that is, all the words of the Lord from chapters 20 through 23, all those ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with twelve pillars for the twelve tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Now there's some really important things going on here. Sacrifices are made. Animals are killed. The blood is taken. Half of it is divided from the other half. With one half, Moses sprinkles that blood on the altar. Now what does the altar represent? It represents God. One of the parties in this covenant is God. So he sprinkles it on the altar because that's the place of the worship of God. He takes the other part of the blood and he sprinkles it where? On the people. You see, the people of Israel and God are entering into this covenant and it's being sealed or ratified by blood. And notice something else from this passage. Verse 4 says, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And verse 7 says, Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, what's the book of the covenant? Verse 7 says, He took the book of the covenant and read it. Well, where did that come from? What's this book of the covenant that he's reading? It's the same thing we find in verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. That's chapters 20 through 23, the book of the covenant, the law of God by which he was going to enter into covenant with his people, and he's going to require Israel to keep these laws and not break them so that they can maintain this covenant relationship. So the book of the covenant is the words of the Lord that Moses had written down and 
the words that he'd written down are the words that we find in chapters 20 through 23. And then the blood is sprinkled on the altar representing God and the people saying that you are bound together now by the blood of the sacrifice to keep your part of the covenant. Are we all together so far? Okay. Now, go over to chapter 31 for just a moment. There's something important over there to see as well. Exodus 31, verse 16. Exodus 31, 16. It says, So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath, to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. Did you hear what he described the Sabbath as? He says the Sabbath is a perpetual covenant. Look at verse 17. It is a what? Sign. The Sabbath is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Now I know that there's different views on the Sabbath today, but I just want to share what I'm seeing here. You can check it out and see if you think I'm right or wrong. Verse 17 says that the Sabbath is a sign between God and Israel. It's a sign of the covenant from verse 16. The Sabbath was a sign. Now, what's a sign? It's a symbol. It's an, something that stands for something else. So the Sabbath, and if you don't know what the Sabbath is, it was the, uh, the seventh day where they were to rest. God says, you resting on the seventh day is going to be a sign that you're my people, that you've entered into covenant with me. Now, have you ever wondered why the Sabbath was included in the Ten Commandments? All the other commandments seem moral in nature. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, honor your father and mother, don't bear false witness, don't have no other, no other gods before me. This one seems a little different. Like the Sabbath doesn't seem like it's a moral issue. Here we're told it was a sign. It was a ceremonial law. Well, then why was it included with all these other nine moral issues? Because it's a sign of the covenant. Because it's, it's like when you get married, you have wedding rings, right? They're the sign of your marriage. And what if, what if I took off my wedding ring and I got really mad at Debbie and threw at her feet and said, I'm done, I'm out of here, and I leave? <laughs> what, would the, what would I signify by taking off my ring and throwing it? That I'm repudiating the covenant that I had entered into with my wife. And if Israel blatantly disregards the Sabbath, they're doing the same thing. Because the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant that they had entered into. And that's why it's given such a prominent place within the Ten Commandments. Because it was the sign, the ceremonial observance, the outward observance that they were God's covenant people. Now, I believe that's why we have no Sabbath commandment in the New Testament. Because it was a sign between the children of Israel and Jehovah God during this old covenant period of time. It was there, it was the way that God was communicating that they were his covenant people. So that's why there's no New Testament Sabbath command, because it was for a period of time. Now, I hope nobody is offended by this. I, I know there's different views on this. I'm just sharing what I've come after a long uh, meditation on this subject. Um, that's where I've come out, that the Sabbath was, it was an ordinance given to Israel, and it was to be the sign of their Mosaic covenant, the Sinaitic covenant that they entered into. But the new covenant has replaced, superseded that old covenant. We're not under the old covenant anymore. We're under a new covenant. 
Okay, now my purpose this morning is to show you how Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant. Moses was the mediator of this old covenant, but Jesus Christ is the mediator of a better covenant with better promises. So that's my purpose, and there's a lot of similarities between the old and new covenants, but there's a lot of dissimilarities between the old and the new covenants. And so I'm just going to ask a bunch of questions this morning and see if we can find the answers from the Bible. Okay, so first of all, first question, when did God inaugurate each covenant? The old covenant, the new covenant. When was the old covenant inaugurated? Well, Exodus 19 tells us the answer to that question. Exodus 19 verse 1 says, In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So the old covenant was inaugurated when the children of Israel had come to Mount Sinai, three months after they had been delivered out of the land of Egypt. When was the new covenant inaugurated? Let's go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 20. Here Jesus on the night before he goes to the cross is with his disciples and he's instituting the Last Supper which will become the Lord's Supper. And he says in verse 20, This cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. First time the new covenant is mentioned is at the, the, the night before Jesus goes to the cross which tells us that the old covenant was inaugurated at Sinai. The new covenant is inaugurated at Calvary. Two mountains. Two different covenants. One old, one new. Okay? Second question. Who are the mediators of each covenant? And before we answer that, let's, let's talk about what a mediator is. So we're clear on that. Uh, a mediator is like a middleman. He's a go-between between two different parties. Especially if those parties are at odds with each other. And they can't come to an agreement and they're feuding or fighting, a middleman will come in and he will bring them together and try to solve the problem that's separating them. He'll reconcile these two parties together. So who was the mediator of this old covenant that we've been talking about in Exodus 19? Moses was that mediator. Moses was the mediator. He was the middleman. Let's go back to uh, Exodus 19. I told you there's going to be a lot of Bible in this sermon. <laughs> We're going to be reading a lot. Uh, look at Exodus 19, verse 3. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. So God called Moses up to the mountain and said, This is a message I want you to deliver to the sons of Israel. Right? Now look at verse 8. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So you see what's happening? Moses is speaking from God to the people, and then he's speaking from the people to God. He, he's the middleman between these two parties, and God is establishing a covenant with the nation through Moses as the representative, as the mediator. Now, who's the mediator of the new covenant? This one's easy, because the Bible's really clear on this one. It comes from Hebrews chapter 8, and verse 6. 
Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, which says, But now he, and if you follow the train of thought, the he is referring to Jesus Christ. We find that from chapter 7, um, verse 26. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. Now, also go over with me to chapter 9, verse 15, which says, For this reason he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant. So he's the mediator of a better covenant, and he's the mediator of a new covenant. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says there, when he's writing about this subject, he says, There is one God, and there's one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. So there's only one mediator between a holy God and a sinful man. There's only one go-between, one reconciler. There's only one in all the world. Don't start looking for three or four or 20 or others. There, there's only one, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he is the mediator of the new covenant, the better covenant that has better promises. Now, question number three. Who are the parties in each of these covenants? Well, we've already hinted at that. But from Exodus chapter 19, in verse 3, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel. There's the party. The house of Jacob. The sons of Israel. Those are synonyms for the same group, right? These are the Jewish people of the Old Covenant. So Jehovah God is entering into this covenant relationship with the sons of Israel. That's the Old Covenant. But what about the New Covenant? Who are the parties in the New Covenant? In the New Covenant, we have God entering into covenant with His Son, Jesus Christ, and everybody who is in Christ. Okay? In the Old Testament, God entered into human covenant with human beings personally, and they were responsible now to obey His covenant. In this New Covenant, it's way better, because He doesn't enter into covenant with fallible, sinful, faltering human beings like us. Specifically, He enters into covenant with His Son, and then if you're in the Son, you're part of that covenant. You're in the New Covenant. So those are the parties of the New Covenant. You see, Jesus Christ came and perfectly kept God's law, unlike the children of Israel in the Old Testament. And then, you know, the children of Israel had to keep on offering animal sacrifices because of their sinfulness. Well, Jesus Christ put away with the animal sacrifices by offering himself once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. He died for sins, died for transgressions, putting away this old system, this old priestly system of sacrifice, and He becomes the, the way to the Father now. So He is the one entering into covenant with His Father. Okay, question number four. Who makes promises in each of these covenants? Now let's go back to Exodus 19. Look at verse 5. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, that's their part, then, here's God's part, you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and, second part, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests 
And thirdly, you're going to be a holy nation. So who makes promises? Well, again, God and Israel make promises. But did you notice these are, this is a bilateral agreement? Bilateral meaning there's two parties, two, two parties compacting together. They each bind themselves with promises. It's like a husband and a wife getting married. Both of them make vows to each other. So that's a bilateral covenant. We're going to see that the new covenant is different. It's not the same kind of a covenant as the old covenant. Okay, the new covenant. Who's making promises there? Well, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 8. And you might want to just keep, you know, your little thing in your Bible in Hebrews 8, because we're going back to Hebrews 8 a lot today. Let's see what it says there. Hebrews 8, we're going to read verses 6 through 12. And think carefully as we read through this. But now he, Christ, has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them. Now, when he says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, what covenant is he talking about? The Mosaic covenant. The one that was, the one they've been reading about in Exodus 19 through 24. The covenant that God made with his people at Sinai. He says, I'm making a different kind of a covenant. It's not going to be like the covenant which I made with your fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. And it's different in this sense. They did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them. In other words, the people of Israel broke the covenant, and God broke off the covenant with them because of their faithlessness. The old covenant was a covenant that could be broken. So this new covenant's different. And it's better. It's glorious. I want you to see how glorious this new covenant is. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. That's, those are the terms of this new covenant. Now in the old covenant, we had a bilateral agreement, right? Israel and Jehovah making promises and then the blood is sprinkled on the altar, sprinkled on the people to seal them in this covenant. Now they're bound to keep their promises. But in the new covenant, who's making the promises? Did you see there? God is making the promises. There's not a single word ever in this passage about the sinner making a promise to God. Did you see that? It's, an, it's not an if-then covenant. It's an I will and they shall covenant. That's the language of this covenant. Like, Let's just read it. Verse 10. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen know the Lord 
for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will. God is binding himself. He's promising the things that he's going to do in this new covenant. And there's not a word about what people like you and I promise. And I believe that's significant because it's not so much about our promise. It's about what Christ has promised and done and fulfilled. And if you're in the Son, you're in the covenant. So this one is not a bilateral covenant. It's not two parties making promises to each other. It's a unilateral covenant. God himself makes promises. It's like the Abrahamic covenant of Exodus, or Genesis chapter 17. If you go back and study that covenant, it's the same kind of a covenant. God himself is the one who made all the promises on behalf of Abraham and himself. He put Abraham to sleep. Abraham did nothing. And God made all these promises to Abraham. Same kind of covenant in the new. So the old covenant was, what would you say, conditional or unconditional? It's conditional. What's the new covenant? It's unconditional. Isn't that glorious? If it was conditional, folks, we would mess it up. <laughs> we, we would have no assurance we're ever going to see this covenant through to the end. I know I'd already have blown it many times before. But it's an unconditional, unilateral, guaranteed covenant because God Almighty is the one who's pledging the promises in this covenant. Okay, now what's the basis of each covenant? Question number five. What's the basis of the covenant. The old covenant, the basis was the legal obedience of the people of Israel. As long as they kept God's laws, they continued in the covenant. So it was a covenant of works. If they worked and kept on working, they could receive the blessings of that covenant. But man, you had to work and you could never relax and you could never let up and you couldn't fail and you just had to keep on working. And notice, the very first commandment God gives to them is, you shall have no other gods before me. That was the big issue with God and Israel. He wanted to be their God. He was their husband. And he didn't want them cheating on him, committing spiritual adultery by going to other gods. He was entering into covenant, and he wanted his people to be faithful to him. So the basis of that covenant is they had to remain faithful to the Lord. They couldn't cheat on the Lord. If they stopped working, the covenant would fall to the ground. Now, what about the new covenant? What's the basis of that covenant? It's not our works. It's not our legal obedience to God's law. It's Christ's works. It's Christ's obedience to God's law. You see, it's a whole different basis. And so it's not a covenant based on works. It's a covenant based on grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, grace comes through Jesus Christ. It's a different way of approach, a different basis. The old covenant was a covenant of works. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. And that's why we are secure. Uh, Hebrews 8 verse 9 says that the old covenant, they did not continue in it, and so God did not care for them. 
In other words, there was a cleavage, a breakage in that covenant at some point when they had been unfaithful too many times. Now, God forgave them. I mean, they were they committed idolatry again and again and again, and God was so gracious and so faithful. He took her back again and again. But eventually, God said, I've had enough, and he sent them off into exile and good riddance. He broke the marriage covenant, wrote them a bill of divorce. And I, I do not believe personally that God is in covenant relationship with Israel anymore. I believe that ended when they rejected their Messiah, ultimately. And then they went on to persecute the apostles that Jesus had sent out. And God sent the Roman armies to destroy Jerusalem and the temple and the priesthood was abolished. And he put an end to the old system. The old covenant's gone. There is a new covenant, a better covenant in his place. The covenant that God has with His Son and all who are in His Son. And what that means is that we don't have to work to earn God's favor or God's blessings like the people in that other covenant had to do. We don't have to work to gain God's acceptance. It's gained for us by what our Lord, our mediator, has already done. Now, question number six, what are the stipulations of each covenant? And by stipulation, I'm talking about what are the conditions that each party has to fulfill? Okay, let's go back to Exodus again, Exodus 19. Verse 5 says that the stipulation for the people was that they had to obey God's voice and keep His covenant. Well, what exactly did He mean by that? Let me share it with you by going over to Exodus 23. Go to Exodus 23. Because the Lord makes it clear what he meant by keeping his covenant and obeying his voice. In Exodus 23, verse 23, God says, For my angel will go before you and bring you to the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. And then, verse 32, God says, You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So he says, you've got to obey my voice and keep my covenant. What that means is you need to keep yourself faithful and pure to Jehovah. You do not go after the other gods of the nations around you. Now, of course, it included other things. Chapters 20 through 23 had other laws stipulated, but that seemed like the one that was the most important to God of all, is that they not commit idolatry. That's what sent them into exile eventually, into Assyria. So that was, that was the stipulation of the Old Covenant. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the gods of the nations around you. You shall obey my voice and heed my covenant. But what about the New Covenant? As we've already seen, there are no stipulations listed in the language of the New Covenant. Christ fulfilled the conditions of the New Covenant. Christ came as the sinless one, and he worked out a perfect spotless righteousness, obeying all of God's law. And when you and I put our faith in Jesus Christ, His righteousness is now imputed. It's credited to us. His perfect works are, they, they cover us like a beautiful clean white garment. 
So we, God sees no stains, no ugliness, no marring of his people. He sees the beautiful righteousness of his own son, clothing his people. So Christ fulfilled all the conditions, and what we do now is we rest in Christ's works. This new covenant is not based on our works. It's based on his, but he already filled them. He did them. He already completed the works. They're done. It is finished, he said. All of it was finished at the cross. And when he rose again, God put his stamp of approval, his seal, that Christ accomplished everything God required him to do. So if you are in the Son, God looks at you just as he looks at Jesus Christ, perfectly having met every requirement of the law, holy and beloved in the Son. God looks at you and sees his favored ones, his chosen ones, his beloved ones, ones that are have, have met the requirements. Not that we personally did it, but we did it in our representative, in our mediator. You see how it works? It's not God dealing with you individually. You do this, this, and this, and you can get into heaven. No, Christ comes and does for us what we can never do for ourselves, and we just trust in Him. We rest in His works. That's what faith is, resting in the works of another. It's so sad when we go out to witness and share, and it seems like everyone is deluded into thinking that if they work hard enough, they'll get into heaven. If they're just good enough, God will accept them. It's, it's not taught in Scripture. What's taught in Scripture is that none of us are good enough. None of us, nobody in this world is good enough except for Jesus Christ. And if you're connected to Him, you are in. Praise God. Okay, now we're going to go back and we're going to look at the blessings of each of the covenants, the Old Covenant and the New. And we're going to spend a good deal of time here. We went pretty quick through the first six questions. We're going to take some time in question number seven. So we looked at the stipulations. Now what are the blessings? Okay, Exodus 19 Well, we've already read this. The blessing was that they shall be my own possession among all the peoples. They shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But exactly what does that mean? Let's go over to chapter 23. Because God gets more specific there. And let's look at uh, verses 25 to 31. The Lord tells us the blessings of this covenant. Okay, Exodus 23, 25. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water. In other words, they'll have food and drink. And I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets ahead of you so that they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, that the land may not become desolate, and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. Now, we have lots of blessings mentioned here. God's going to provide their food and their drink. He's going to remove sickness from them. He's going to remove miscarriages and barrenness from the people. 
He's going to drive out their enemies and he's going to give them the land of Palestine to live in. That's basically, if you boil it down, the blessings of this old covenant. Now what's interesting, what, what's true about all the blessings that we just read about? They're, they're all natural. Is that what you said? Yes, they're, they're physical. They're material. They're natural. They're temporal. They're not spiritual. When you get to the new covenant, the blessings are all spiritual and eternal blessings. There's a complete difference in the blessings that, see, if they were to obey God's covenant and keep these laws, they got all these physical blessings. They would have children. They would have food and drink. God would drive out their enemies. They'd have the land of Palestine. They'd have those wonderful natural material blessings. But what are the blessings of the new covenant? That's what we want to focus some time on because this is, this is, the, we're getting to the good stuff now. <laughs> so go over to Hebrews 8. Let's look at Hebrews 8. And the very first blessing there is a desire to obey God. Let's look at it. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. God gave an external law in the Old Testament to his covenant people, right? He wrote it on tablets of stone. In the New Testament, he also writes his law, but not on stone. He writes it inside, on the heart. He says here, I will put my laws into their minds, and I'll write those laws on their hearts. What does it mean for God to write his law on somebody's heart? What would that mean? Yes, he gives them a desire, a love for these laws, a, a, a desire to fulfill those laws. Can you remember a time in your life when you really didn't have a desire to do God's will? You really wanted to do your own? <laughs> and do you remember a time when God changed all of that? You know what we call that? That's regeneration. That's being born again. God <laughs> takes out the old heart of stone, and he puts a new one in it, inside of you, and on the new heart, he's already written his laws. In other words, God's will becomes something that I want, that I desire. It becomes a priority in my life. And do you know, every person who's born again has this stamped on their heart. Jeremiah 17.1 says that sin was etched onto our hearts from birth with a diamond stylus. It was inscribed on us. We have a sin nature. We're born with it. Nothing we can do about it. It's etched into our nature. But in the new birth, God etches something else into your heart. And that's His law. The laws that are pleasing unto Him. And how does it get there? How do those laws get on the heart? Well, the Holy Spirit comes and writes them. The Holy Spirit does this work of bringing new life new affections, new loves, and new hatreds. All kinds of new things go on when the Holy Spirit regenerates a person. Let me just read to you Jeremiah 32, 40. It talks there about the everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 
God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. Wow. God says, I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to continue to do them good all their life. I will not cease. I will not forsake them. I'm not leave them. I'm going to be, I'm going to stick by their side closer than a brother for their entire life. And I'm going to pour good on them all their days. But notice this. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. Now, what happens if God promises never to turn away from you and he puts the fear of him in your heart so that you will never turn away from him? That is about the most secure relationship I can possibly imagine. If God won't turn away from me and I'll never turn away from him, then I am secure in my relationship to Jesus Christ. Let's say when my sons were little, they loved baseball just like I did. And they love learning about all the old baseball heroes of the past. And so I give them an assignment one day. I say, uh, Jonathan and Josiah have got an assignment for homeschool today. I want you to read a book on Babe Ruth. And then I want you to write a, ba- a book report on it. Well, that's not going to be any problem for them because that's what they want to do anyway. <laughs> they want to read all about their baseball heroes. So when God writes his law in our hearts, it's like he's, he's telling us what to do, but it's already there that this is what we want. Now, if I go tell my sons, I want you to go clean up that ugly old room and restore it to tip-top shape, they're going to drag their feet. and you know They don't want to do that. And it's probably not going to get done because it's not in their heart. So the new covenant comes with God writing on our hearts what he wants us to do. So it's not this dreary, burdensome chore to obey God. It's something that the believer really wants to do. <laughs> Praise God for that. So let me just ask you, is this true of you? Be honest. Do you want to please God? Is there something on your heart that you want to do his will? That's the starting point of sanctification. We cannot become like Christ unless this has happened to us. And the Spirit has to do this. I can't do it. Sin was engraved on my heart from birth. That's what I'm stuck with as a human being, fallen. The Spirit must come and write the law on my heart. It's a supernatural work that He does. But is that true of you, my friends? Think about that carefully this morning. A lot of people relate to God as, well, I've got to keep this dreary burdensome law but if I don't I'm going to go to hell so I better try to be good that that's not the way that we God wants to, us to relate to him he wants us to relate to him out of out of an overflow of love we love him because he first loved us Amen. so God begins this work in a person's life by sending his holy spirit into their heart and changing it now if you've never experienced that change of your heart I would encourage you to cry out to God. Begin to pray and pray daily and ask the Lord to work in you. Ask Him to change your heart. Ask Him to give you a new heart. Ask Him to write His laws upon your heart. And and be in church where the gospel is preached because that's that's the place where God is most likely to convert you. It's when you're hearing the gospel preached. Be in the Word of God on your own. Read the Bible daily and 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 continue to seek God until you know that He's done that work upon your own soul. So the first blessing of the new covenant is a desire to obey God. The second blessing 
is a relationship with God. Because over in Hebrews chapter 8, he says, And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God could have said it like this, I will be their husband, and they will be my wife. In other words, I'm entering into this intimate relationship with these people. The Old Testament Jews broke the covenant by spiritual adultery, and in Jeremiah 3.8, God writes them a bill of divorcement. They ceased to be God's covenant people. They ceased to be God's special possession. They ceased to be the chosen nation and the kingdom of priests. And all those blessings now are given to who? The church, according to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Made up of Jew and Gentile, they become God's special possession, God's chosen people, God's kingdom of priests. But what's really interesting here to me is that all, when you get married, everything that is yours now becomes your wife's, and everything that is your wife's now becomes yours. Joint ownership, right? I remember when I first married Debbie, I didn't even have a car. I was really glad that she did. Her car now became mine, and I got to drive her car. Because I, I mean, we had a motorcycle, but that was about it. <laughs> and now I got the, the blessing of being able to drive her car. But we had joint ownership of everything we had, and really it wasn't very much back then, right? Just our suitcases and a car. <laughs> And a motorcycle. And I had my banjo too. <laughs> but that was about it. But think about it. Joint ownership. When you enter into covenant with God, everything that is God's becomes yours. All of God's attributes, His perfections, now are for you. So think about it like this. God exercises His perfections for your good. He exercises His wisdom to guide you. His power to protect you. His love to enrich you. His faithfulness to keep you. All of the attributes of God are for His people. That's why Paul says, I think it's in 1 Corinthians 4 or 2 Corinthians 4, somewhere in there, he says, all things are yours. That's what he means, because we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. God is the one that we have come to inherit. And all that God is now is for us, not against us, because we're in the Son. That's why Romans 8.28 says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Who is that? Those are the people in this covenant, in the new covenant. Everything works for their good now. God's chasing them down to pour good on their life. Remember Jeremiah 32.40? He will never cease to do good for His people. So is this true of you? Do you have a relationship with God? A saving relationship with God? One of my employees once told me that, you know, I've got a relationship with God. Um, I don't go to church. I don't like going to church. But God and I, we have our own relationship. But I happen to know that he, he lived with his girlfriend without any conviction over it. And I said, you may think you have a relationship, but you don't have a saving relationship with God. If you did, the Holy Spirit wouldn't let you go on in that condition. He would convict you of that sin, and you would have to repent. So do you have a relationship with God? Are you His people? All that is yours is His. Just like all that's His is yours, the converse is also true. All that is ours is now His.
You can't be married and hold stuff back and say, I'm not going to share this. When we married up with Jesus Christ, our life became his, our time became his, our mind became his, our heart became his, our soul, our strength, our finances, our homes, everything that we are and everything that we have now is his. And it's his right to tell us how he wants us to use those things. You see, we're in covenant with our maker and our redeemer. So a new desire to please God comes with this covenant. A new relationship with God comes with the covenant. A knowledge of God is the third blessing. Because Hebrews 8.11 says, And they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. No man's going to have to go around saying to his brother, You need to know the Lord. Because everybody who's in this covenant already knows the Lord. You see that from the text? If everybody who's been entered into this new covenant knows God and knows Jesus Christ, that was different than in Israel's case. In the old covenant, you had some people that knew the Lord and some that didn't. You had some truly believing Israelites and some non-believing Israelites. It was a mixed multitude. There was also always a remnant of God's chosen elect Israelites who knew God and walked with God, but then many that didn't. But in the new covenant, every single person in this new covenant community knows him. And that's different than knowing about God. I knew about God before I was converted. I went to church. My dad told me about God. I knew some things about God, but I didn't know God. How many of you would say, I know Michael Jordan? Or I know Donald Trump, our president. I don't think any of us could say that because we're not, you know, we're, we don't talk to him on a daily basis. We don't call him up. He doesn't write us emails. Um, we, we don't sit down and, and discuss life with, with those kinds of, we know about them because they're, what they do is in the news, but we really don't know them. We don't have an intimate relationship with them. And the new covenant promises an intimacy of relationship with God where we know Him and He knows us. Now, how does that happen? Because 1 Corinthians one twenty one says that we cannot by our own wisdom find out God. It says man can't do it. His own wisdom is not great enough to find out God. How does anybody come into this knowledge of God then if they can't by their wisdom figure it out? Jesus says, no man comes to me except the Father who sent me draws him. Now, I can't know one of you unless I come to you. If I always remain at a distance, way back here, I'll never get to know you. I have to come close. Jesus said we can't get close to him. We can't come to him unless the Father draws us. And in the very next verse, he tells us what that drawing is. He says, they shall all be taught of God. He who has heard and learned from the Father is the one who comes to me. So this drawing is the Father teaching you. It's hearing and learning from the Father. And through that personal instruction of God the Father, we come into a relationship with Him. Now folks, that is a huge blessing because most people that I know have never experienced that teaching of the Father. Do you remember when Peter... Jesus says, you know, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
You see, the father taught him. He heard and learned from the father. God told him who Jesus was, and Peter knew. Do you have that experience where you know who Jesus Christ is because God has taught you that? He's opened up your mind and your heart to who Jesus is, and there's a certainty about it. There's a knowledge. So let me just ask a few questions. Married persons know each other. Do you know God? Do you speak with God? And does God speak with you? And I'm not talking about hearing voices. I'm talking about God speaking to you primarily through His Word. Does He speak to you through the Word? And I'm not discounting God can speak in other ways too, if He wants to. Dreams or visions or whatever He wants to do. But primarily, the primary way is through this book. Does God speak to you? Do you speak to God? Are you aware of His presence? Does He manifest Himself to you? Is he real to you? Just as real as any other person in this room? So that's the blessing of coming into this covenant. There is a knowledge of God. Okay, let's look at the final blessing here. The final blessing is a pardon from God. Hebrews chapter 8 again. He says in verse 12, For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. This is a full and complete pardon from God to where he never remembers them again. And you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's omniscient, right? He's all-knowing. How can an all-knowing God cease to know about your sins? Right? You ever struggle with that idea? Well, basically what this is meaning is that God will treat you as if he had totally forgotten. God can't forget anything because God is all-knowing. But God can regard or treat somebody as if he did not know about it, as if he had totally forgotten all about their sins. And that's what he does for people under the new covenant. Sin keeps us from God and his blessings. It's like sin is like a dam that's holding God's blessings back. And through the cross, Jesus Christ comes and shatters that dam and torrents of water, streams of blessing come pouring over your life. Grace runs down like a mighty stream when Jesus Christ brings you into this covenant. And the old covenant, animal sacrifices were offered, but those animal sacrifices couldn't take away sin. They would cover it over for another year, and then another sacrifice had to be made, and next year another sacrifice had to be made, and on and on and on. A never-ending line of priests, a never-ending line of sacrifices. But Jesus Christ comes and once for all, by one sacrifice, puts away the sins of his people. And they're all gone. And he doesn't remember them again. He's merciful to our iniquities. So is this true of you? Are all of your sins forgiven? Does God treat you as if you'd never sinned? Think what life would be like if that was not true. If you stood condemned before God and there's nothing you could do to get rid of that condemnation and you were headed for final judgment and you were going to stand before this almighty holy maker and being and you're going to stand there in all your sins, think about what that would be like. And then let your heart overflow with love and gratitude that it's not like that. That God has washed them all away. 
and you're clean and pure in his sight because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf. I want to conclude with a chart that I made up to try to make the differences between these two covenants clear to you. So here's the, here's the chart. When did God inaugurate each covenant? The old covenant was inaugurated at Sinai, the new covenant at Calvary. Who are the mediators of each covenant? The old covenant was Moses. The new covenant is Jesus Christ. Who are the parties in each covenant? The old covenant was Jehovah and Israel. The new covenant is Jehovah and Christ and all who are in Christ. Who's making promises in each covenant? In the old covenant, it's Jehovah and Israel. and the new covenant, it's Jehovah alone who's making the promises. Can this covenant be broken? The old covenant? Yes, it was broken. The new covenant? No. Cannot be broken. What's the basis of the old? Works. The basis of the new covenant? Grace. What about the next slide? Was the old covenant conditional or unconditional? It's conditional. But the new covenant is unconditional. There's no conditions weighing upon God's people that have not been met in Jesus. Who's binding themselves in the old covenant? Both Jehovah and Israel. Under the new covenant, it's Jehovah alone who binds himself. What are the stipulations of each covenant? The old covenant is to obey God's voice and keep his commandment. The new covenant, what we're called to do is have faith in Jesus Christ, which is really resting in his works. He's already accomplished it. We rest in what he's done. What are the blessings of each? In the old covenant, sickness is removed. Miscarriages and barrenness are removed. Enemies are driven out. The land of Palestine is given. Under the new covenant, a desire to obey God, a relationship with God, a knowledge of God, a pardon from God. Do you see the differences this morning? And do you see how much better off you are this morning to be in the new covenant rather than the old? It comes with better promises. These are spiritual and eternal promises. They're not temporal and material. And these promises cannot be taken away from you because they're already been fulfilled in your mediator. <clears throat> in the old covenant, those blessings could be removed if you were faithless to God. But Christ has already been faithful and he will keep you believing and trusting in the Lord Jesus until the very end. Faithful is he who calls you. He also will bring it to pass. So I just want to call you to, to joy today and to worship and to gratitude and just to enjoy your Christian life. Enjoy the covenant that you placed under. Enjoy these blessings, your knowledge of God and the forgiveness of all your sins and this relationship to God and this desire to please God that's in your heart. Enjoy that. Enjoy God. I, I would hate for any of, of you to, to go through your Christian life in this dreary, humdrum, well, I guess I gotta do this because I guess I'm a Christian. I want you to enjoy your Christian life, and you should. You should enjoy this covenant that God's placed under. Amen. Let's pray. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. That's really, Lord, I, all I can say after looking at these scripture together with my brothers and sisters this morning is that we have a great, great Savior. And we are so blessed, Lord. Lord, lead us in the rest of this meeting as we observe the Lord's Supper together that we would remember the, the blessings of the covenant. In Jesus' name, amen.